This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Wayne Williams. Now, I really feel that I have to put a disclaimer in here, okay? This podcast will deal with race and racial issues. I am, by no stretch of the imagination, qualified to have any opinion on racial matters when it comes to people of color. I understand completely that I have no frame of reference. I am white, though that never saved me from some seriously messed up stuff from my infancy on. So... The information I give here is just based on facts from research. It is not opinion-based at all. I, of course, am completely against racial discrimination, and it is not lost on me that it still exists. So bear that in mind as we get into it. Wayne Williams was born on May 27, 1958, making him a Gemini in Dixie Hills, which is a part of Atlanta, Georgia. And, as we usually do, let's get into some history at that time. 1958 in the United States, President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act into law, thus creating the National Aeronautics and Space Administration that we lovingly know as NASA. They are on a mission to research space and everything that goes with it. We also launched the first satellite out of the U.S. called Explorer 1. The Soviet Union had already launched Sputnik 1 and 2. The Explorer 1 was used to measure the radiation in Earth's orbit, and it successfully orbited our planet over 58,000 times before it re-entered Earth's atmosphere in 1970. The Soviet Union launched Sputnik 3 and their satellite was to study the composition of the atmosphere and cosmic rays while in orbit. The USS Nautilus, which was a nuclear submarine, was the first to successfully cross under the North Pole in August. 
this was a very first below the sea expedition to find the geographic North Pole. They sailed out of Alaska and they traveled under the Arctic ice cap. It went all the way through and they stopped near Iceland. There was another World's Fair in 1958 and this one took place in Brussels, Belgium. It was the first major World's Fair to happen after World War II had ended. The previous one had been in New York in 1940. In Brussels, the fair was about 490 acres big and it featured several pavilions with showcases of science, arts, architecture, engineering, as well as other countries featuring their own cultures and accomplishments. It had over 41 million visitors while it was open. In the United Kingdom, the peace symbol was created by a British designer, Gerald Holton. He drew the symbol for a series of anti-nuclear weapons protests that were beginning in April. The group, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, or CND, took this peace sign as their symbol and logo, and it is the peace sign that we all know and love today. In 1958, Elvis Presley joined the army. Brazil won the World Cup in Sweden. The hula hoop was introduced and over 100 million were sold. The popular singers of the day were of course Elvis, um, Billie Holiday, Ricky Nelson, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Jerry Lee Lewis, and not long after, the Jackson Five. People were watching Candid Camera on TV as well as The Ed Sullivan Show and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Other celebrities born in 1958 are our original scream queen Jamie Lee Curtis and country singer Tanya Tucker. Now as far as the cost of living goes, the price of the average new house was about $12,750 or rent was an average of $92 a month. A yearly salary was roughly $4,600 and a gallon of gas was just 25 cents. The state of Georgia is situated in what the country calls the Deep South. It's actually where they film The Walking Dead. The heat and humidity down there is nothing to mess with. Atlanta itself has a very rich history, but not all of it has been very positive. But a lot of produce comes from around the Atlanta area, such as apples, various berries, cabbage, corn, cotton, cucumbers, grapes, hay, oats, tobacco, just a lot of variety because their grow season is longer than those states more north. The population of the greater Atlanta area during the time of Wayne's birth and infancy was around 250,000 or a bit more. Wayne's parents were Homer and Faye Williams. Homer was born in July 1913 in Fort Mitchell, Alabama. Faye was also born in Alabama in 1918. In 1940, 
22-year-old Faye and 27-year-old Homer were living in Columbus, Georgia, which is about an hour and a half drive southwest from Atlanta. It's really kind of on the border of the state. And according to the 1940 census, he and his wife also had Homer's mother, his two brothers, and his sister living with them as well. Both Homer and Faye went to college and they were teachers and at some point they moved to the Dixie Hills district of Atlanta just west of the city center. Now Dixie Hills as well as surrounding neighborhoods at least back then would be where many black families would move to and would go on to become the heart of Atlanta's civil rights movement for better living conditions and standards. Wayne was born into a very blatantly segregated part of Atlanta, and my research shows that it still is, for the most part, today. There were black-owned businesses there, and that brought much of the population, and many of the owners of these businesses, though middle or upper class, continued to live in that area. But by the later 1960s, huge government housing apartment complexes and buildings were being built surrounding the local community. This of course brought with it social and economic changes. In the summer of 1967, Dixie Hills joined in on the race riots going on around the country after Stokely Carmichael addressed a protest over a youth's shooting by a policeman and was urging black Americans to prepare for a total revolution. In Atlanta, Martin Luther King Jr. was very much against this. The area had already had its fair share of civil unrest prior to 1967, with confrontations in the streets between civil rights advocates and the, quote, old patterns of racial relationships, unquote, which basically means the people that were still very much racist and wanted segregation. This was also intertwined with the anti-war movement as more people were shipped off to Vietnam. All of this led up to three days of riots in the Dixie Hills area, where police officers even had to seek refuge by climbing up the side of a building and onto a roof for their own safety. See, if you Google that, there is a picture of them literally trying to get on top of the roof. It's intense. So back to Wayne's parents. Homer and Faye were of a more, let's say, advanced age when they became parents. If the birth years cited for both of them are correct, that would have made Homer 45 and Faye 40 years old when Wayne was born in 1958. Unfortunately, there just isn't a lot of detailed information about his early childhood, but we do have some. And even though there was some social strife at that time, of course, not to the level that it was when Wayne was older, his parents decided to stay in their area when many chose to move. So a significant portion of other families were made up of single mothers living in the housing projects. Homer and Faye also didn't want to leave because they had worked hard and had managed to pay off their home. They chose to make the best of the situation. 
Being that both of his parents were teachers, it would be reasonable to assume that he was nurtured and educated from the beginning. There has been zero evidence of any neglect or abuse whatsoever. Wayne was also the couple's only child, and he was somewhat spoiled with toys and gifts many children just didn't get. His parents doted on him and did not shy away from showing him love. And Wayne loved his electric train set, his bicycle, and his father also bought him a combination rifle and shotgun when he was younger, intending on teaching his son how to hunt. But Wayne didn't show much interest, so his father quit taking him. He was encouraged in any and all academic interests, and Wayne particularly loved electronics and music. His favorite music was Motown, R&B, and Soul, and his favorite group was the Jackson 5. However, Wayne, who really wanted to be a musician, didn't have the natural singing talent needed to be successful. But what he did have a talent for was taking radios apart, fixing them, and putting them back together. That moved on to more complex electronics. And as he got older, he began to charge for his services. I mean, he was developing into quite the savvy businessman. He was later described as a model student, making excellent grades and having an above average IQ, but was also a loner. He was quite content with his own company and preferred to do things on his own rather than play with the other kids. He had to wear glasses as a kid and was also a bit of a nerd, so he was bullied by his peers. And sources say plainly that the bullying that happens between black American children is frequently more intense than other racial groups. However, he was, again, quite intelligent and was usually able to talk his way out of violent exchanges using what is known as, quote, the dozens. And this was really interesting to me. The dozens refers to an African-American folk tradition of back and forth insults that can turn a bit obscene. It's a sort of, you know, comedic trash talk, verbal sparring that is a substitute for physical fighting. According to UrbanDictionary.com, it is an oral tradition rooted in traditional West African cultures and it's a contest of personal power, wit, self-control, mental agility, and so on. It became more commonplace as it was used to, unfortunately, devalue slaves on the auction block who might be past their prime and not able to do the intense labor, and they were usually sold by the dozen. So even though Wayne was a loner, he was still considered a somewhat popular kid. His quick wit was impressive, and the other kids respected that. It was during these times that Wayne quickly learned how to manipulate certain situations to benefit him. In 1973, a 15-year-old Wayne started working as an announcer for WIGO Radio, and a year later, his parents gave him money to buy the equipment, and he actually started his own radio station, WRAZ, out of their home. 
One former Atlanta radio DJ said, quote, he was a bit old for his age, unquote. Wayne was mature and clearly driven to be successful, but ultimately his at-home radio station was unsuccessful and his father later stated that it in fact forced his parents to have to file for bankruptcy in 1976. It was also in 1976 that Wayne graduated from Frederick Douglass High School with honors, top of his class and the student council president. He scored high enough to get into many universities, but he instead chose to stay in his parents' house and try to become an entrepreneur. So that was Wayne's childhood. Now, without giving too much away too early in the story, let's work with the information we have so far. Wayne was in fact an only child to parents that were a bit older when they had him. I wasn't able to find any information as to why they didn't have any children prior to this. So we could speculate that they either just decided to wait or perhaps they were just too busy or they might have even had fertility issues. We really don't know, so it's hard to say. So the sort of well-known stereotype about only children is that they are spoiled, lonely, and just plain odd. But recent studies have turned those ideas completely around. Only children might not score well on personality tests compared to other participants that have siblings, you know, with regards to agreeableness, but they often actually score higher than their counterparts in flexibility, which is a marker for creativity. While there doesn't seem to be a statistically relevant difference in intelligence levels, they did, on average, score higher in the ability to think in unique ways, or what we call outside of the box. But they didn't score higher on fluency or originality, which are also creative measures. But the surprising part was that personality traits, such as neuroticism, extroversion, openness, and conscientiousness, were the same between the two groups. But only children did score lower on sociability, empathy, and connection to others. But it shouldn't really be that surprising when children don't have siblings to interact with, you know, to have the common rivalry with, to practice socially acceptable, or as we've learned, sometimes not so socially acceptable behaviors with, it would make sense that they might lack some in those departments. At the same time, only children tend to have less behavioral issues at school, generally get along with their parents better and so on. So I did some research and what I found was that only 15% of serial killers are only children. The largest group was actually the oldest child, but only marginally beating out the middle and the youngest. So there's that. We also know that during Wayne's childhood, there was a lot of civil unrest, as I said previously. And by a lot, I mean history-making, history-changing levels of civil unrest. 
This podcast would be five hours long if I got into everything going on in the 60s that Wayne would have grown up, you know, hearing about or even somewhat witnessing as a child. Needless to say, it was a scary time for people of color in the South for sure, and they were fighting for rights they should have always had to begin with. It goes without saying that that would have an impact on his personality and information interpretation. My research also stated that bullying within the black youth community was worse than other racial groups. For the most part, the main difference seems to stem from kids who do not conform to a, quote, normalized model of blackness, unquote. According to the website afropunk.com, this is due to trauma-induced and internalized anti, air quotes here, anti-blackness, which is to say that the stereotypical black person could be dangerous, you know, a gangster or a thug, less intelligent, that they'll fail in school and they only listen to certain types of music and so on, which is of course completely false. But for those reasons, the kids that refuse to fit into any of those boxes get bullied. So for Wayne, though there isn't much information on his family history or ancestry, there certainly was no indication of mental illness or violence or addiction issues in his family's past. There's no evidence of any head injury, neglect. I mean, there was nothing that I could find. All I found was that he was raised by loving and supportive parents who stayed married. They never even divorced. So let's get back into it. Now, while most young adults Wayne's age were concerned with finding a mate or hanging out with their best friends, he hit the pavement running toward his goals. Since his radio station had been a bust, he decided he would take his knowledge and interest in music and electronics and become a talent agent. He had made contacts in the Atlanta radio and music industry, and he even used those on his resume. Of course, most of those people say they'd never actually met him. As he went out to find talent, he was mostly interested in younger boys because he wanted to try to make a super successful group, again like the Jackson 5. According to the book, Child Killer, The True Story of the Atlanta Child Murders, Wayne would tell the boys that he was putting a band together and he needed them to record a demo that he would then send out to various radio stations or record companies to see if they would be picked up. Then, once they signed a contract, they would be paid. He would have these boys audition for him either at his home, which was actually his parents' home, or in one of the local recording studios. And after he would get the demo, he would present it to music producers who were generally not interested. Wayne did, however, manage to get a group together that he called Gemini, which was his sign, by the way. He put flyers up everywhere and gave them out at all of the local kid hangouts. These very areas would later be where many of the murdered children went missing from. He later stated that he was in contact with the area schools with release forms for the minor children's parents to sign so the kids could audition. This information 
could never be verified as true. And when he wasn't trying to make a successful music group, he was doing freelance photography, mostly taking pictures at the scene of accidents. Wayne loved to get into his car that was equipped with a police scanner and drive around all evening and night until he heard the scanner go off about, you know, a possible incident. Then he'd drive over, he'd take pictures, develop them, and then sell them to the newspapers. This side job and all the driving around that it entailed also helped him learn all of the little hidden side streets and back roads and alleys of Atlanta. But it is important to remember that nearly all of his activities were done at night. Also, many of the places he handed out flyers or sat and listened to the police radio, I mean, these places would be where most of these missing children would be last seen. In 1976, Wayne was actually arrested for impersonating a police officer. Even after the charges were dropped, he still kept the uniforms and the police light in his car, conveniently. In 1977, he enrolled at Georgia State University and decided on a major in business administration and psychology, while also working as a researcher at WGST Radio. But his college career would not last, and he did drop out in 1979 at 20 years old. Now, it was the summer of 79 that the children began to disappear. 14-year-old Alfred Evans, who liked to play basketball and even boxed at the Warren Memorial Boys Club, was found in a wooded area on Niski Road, strangled to death. His body was next to 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith, who had been shot in his upper back. Alfred was last seen by a young man who had given him a ride to a bus stop. Edward was last seen hanging out with his girlfriend after leaving a skating rink. A few months later, nine-year-old Yusuf Bell was found strangled to death in an abandoned elementary school two weeks after he went missing. He was last seen between a fenced-in playground and a brick apartment building, wearing no shoes, no shirt, and getting into a blue car. He had been sent to buy chewing tobacco by one of his neighbors. But then the murder stopped for six months. Then in May of 1980, 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks was found beaten to death next to his bike in the back garage of a bar. He was a foster child, having been abandoned by both of his biological parents. After this murder, children began to go missing every couple of weeks on average. Sometimes their bodies were found fairly quickly, and others not for months. The way these poor children died varied. Some were beaten to death, some were suffocated, strangled, others were shot, some stabbed. This went on for three years. It is believed that there were a total of 30 children and young teens and a handful of young adults murdered during this time. 
Wayne is thought to be responsible for at least 23 of them. Now, each child deserves to have their story told. My heart breaks for them. It does. These kids existed, and I'm sure were terrified and desperately wanting someone to help them, to save them when they figured out what was happening. Without having to go through each case for the sake of time, I urge you, if you are interested in their stories, go to atkid.weebly.com. It's A-T as in Tom, kid, at kid.weebly.com. It is a site that lists the children and tells their stories, and there are some photos. I did take the time to read through them to show some respect. So while these children were going missing and being found murdered, the terrified parents were, of course, demanding answers. At first, the authorities didn't seem to want to see these cases as connected. You know, they were writing the killings off as being, you know, for example, drug-related or possible domestic violence or even just the kids running away. But finally, the city of Atlanta did implement a curfew. Scared parents kept their kids out of school and they were not allowed to play outside. Some of the parents got together and actually created the Committee to Stop Children's Murders. They were understandably frustrated and applied pressure to the authorities to take these investigations more seriously. Also during this time, more children, boys and girls, were going missing. Some of their bodies were found quickly and others not for months. And it was becoming not just children. As I said previously, six adults had actually been murdered as well. And as disturbing as it sounds, some of the victims only lived a few houses apart. So according to the show Mine Hunters, it would seem that it was insinuated that Though officials stated they searched areas and conducted thorough interviews, once the FBI became involved, they went through the process again, only to find that that had not been the case. The FBI profilers stated that the suspect was most likely a young black male, because not only do serial murderers tend to stay within their own racial groups, but also that children in the area would be wary of strangers in their neighborhood, especially a white male that fit the normal serial killer profile. So the perpetrator would be most likely from the area, possibly even a familiar face of African descent and so on and so on. The FBI also said that the killer would most likely dump bodies into the Chattahoochee River to conceal evidence. Also during this time, they began to run through some possible other suspects, one being the white supremacist and KKK member Charles T. Sanders. The police kept him under close surveillance for seven weeks, all while four more children were murdered. Now he and his brothers passed a lie detector test and they were cleared, although years after the case was already over. He was secretly recorded commending whomever had done these slayings. So as the FBI wanted to concentrate on bridges around rivers and particularly the Chattahoochee River, 
the police began to stake them out. Then on May 22, 1981, a police officer heard a big splash under a bridge. Another policeman saw a white 1970 Chevy station wagon turn around and drive back across the bridge. The police began pursuit and the car pulled over. The driver was then 23-year-old Wayne Williams. Side note, the body of another victim was found not far downstream from that bridge two days later. Now, once the officers approached Wayne's vehicle, they noted there were gloves and rope in the passenger seat. Once they identified who he was, they knew that he was the young man who handed out flyers in black neighborhoods asking for people between the ages of 11 and 21 to come audition for him and sing because he was trying to form a music group. Wayne was local. I mean, he knew the area very well, and he matched the profile that the FBI had put together. So the FBI conducted a polygraph on Wayne, which he did fail, but of course this isn't admissible in court. Once in custody, they searched Wayne's parents' home. They took samples of carpet fibers, you know, fur from his mother's German shepherd mix, among other things. The carpet fibers matched fibers found on some of the victims. They were also able to match the fur from the dog to the fur found on some victims. When the police were questioning him, he said he was on his way to audition a young woman, but they looked into it and she actually didn't exist. Wayne's trial lasted six days. He was found guilty of two murders and given two life sentences. Wayne has always professed his innocence. His own mother even stated that were they not the only people to have a dog or carpet from the same manufacturer in that area? I mean, both of his parents insisted that he was innocent. And you know what? They weren't the only ones. But it is important to note that while he is widely accepted as the serial killer who killed nearly, if not all, of those children and people, he was only charged with and convicted of two murders. Relatives of a few of the victims have even spoken up and stated that they did not believe Wayne was actually guilty of killing their particular loved one. It is also important to note that once Wayne was in custody, the unexplainable murders did actually stop. In May 2004, the case was officially reopened, but was dropped again in 2006. Police Chief Nick Marinelli stated, quote, We dredged up what we had, and nothing has panned out, so until something does or additional evidence comes our way, or there's forensic feedback from existing evidence, we will continue to pursue the other cold cases that are within our reach." Unquote. Now, interestingly, in 2007, mitochondrial DNA testing was done on the dog hairs found on the bodies with fur from Wayne's dog. Those test results were, air quotes, significant that the fur was a match, but not necessarily a 
perfect pristine match. Later that year, they mitochondrial DNA tested hairs found on one of the victims and it was a very close match. And in March of this year, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms, along with Police Chief Erica Shields, stated that the evidence from this case would be retested. The results of which, as of the time of this recording, September 17th, 2019, have not been made available or not yet complete. Wayne is still very much alive today and he still professes his innocence. So there's a lot to cover here and it's difficult to sift through all of the information when it is immediately clear that the murders were not taken seriously enough from the beginning. Now I don't want to say that it was due to the children being black or more from neighborhoods where families struggled more, but how can anyone not actually draw that conclusion? And out of all of this information, it was not really noted that any of the victims had been sexually assaulted before or after death, which makes labeling these as sexually motivated not realistic. However, some of the victims were found either just in their underwear or completely naked, so we can't really rule out the sexual motivation entirely. Now, two teenage boys did testify that Wayne propositioned them and offered them a few bucks to let him fondle them sexually. He then allegedly drove them to a wooded area and asked them if they had ever had sex with boys. One boy stated that Wayne got out of the car and went to get something out of his trunk, and that boy got scared, he got out of that car, and he ran. I could find no information that said Wayne had ever had a girlfriend, right? So he was still living with his parents at 23 years old. It's not completely uncommon, but especially for that time and day, it's a fairly uncommon. And he didn't really ever talk about having any kind of love life. And some speculated he might have even been asexual, meaning he just didn't have sexual feelings toward either gender. If he were homosexual, it stands to reason that he wouldn't talk about it, especially during those times, and especially in his community. But again, we can't really say whether or not he is. He's never said he was. Most murderers that kill children within a certain age group, especially young teens to young adults, are opportunistic killers. They didn't stalk a particular victim for any amount of time. They happen upon their prey. If one were to describe their personality, you'd say that they have feelings of being inferior. They're shy, anxious, and reserved. And while this does describe Wayne to a certain degree, it's not completely accurate either. Some sources also say that people who harm children are subconsciously picking their victims based on the age at which some trauma happened to them when they were children. But again, as far as we know, nothing ever happened to Wayne. In my opinion, I believe he was responsible for some of the murders, but did he truly kill over 20 innocent people? 
I certainly don't know, and I'm anxious to see what comes of the new investigation. So what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info, but I do love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it as I know you could be listening to anyone else and you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.